brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as he always does, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. It's time to make the music. It's time to light the lights. <laughs> you know, you, you, you bring this seriousness to, to the lyrics of The Muppet Show. I have a feeling that it requires gravitas. Yes. So we're going to talk a little bit today about the technology used to make movies. And we're breaking this up into several podcasts because, as it turns out, there's a lot of tech that goes into making movies. And it would be way too much material to cover in one single podcast unless we just mentioned things and then moved on immediately. Yeah, I agree with you there. So we're going to talk about uh, what goes into capturing images and sound uh, and then projecting them for your entertainment, you lucky people. <laughs> so um, let's let's start off with talking about. Uh, we're going to talk about both film and digital here, but let's start with film because, of course, that preceded digital. Sure. So film is an interesting thing already. All right. So we're talking about uh, a material that is photoreactive mm-hmm. when exposed to light. Uh, a chemical change occurs, and you can capture the light from a particular instant and preserve it on film. Mm-hmm. And this is this is how film cameras work. You have a uh, very simply, you've got a lens that focuses light. You have an aperture which uh, is normally blocked by the shutter. Mm-hmm. The shutter keeps light out from the film because, of course, if you if you had light constantly exposed to the film, it would just the chemical reaction would occur uh, in an uncontrolled fashion. Right. So you wouldn't be able to capture the, the picture that you wanted, right? Mm-hmm. So, Plus you wouldn't be able to control the exposure and right. how much light gets to it. So yeah, it would just yeah. be washed out. Yeah, it would be this weird, washed out, blurry picture of nothing, mm-hmm. um, which could be interesting, but it's not uh, not going to work as a movie. Right. Um, at least not unless you're some sort of grad student in Hollywood who's trying to make some sort of, quote, statement, unquote. So assuming that's not the case, uh, you need to have the shutter there to block light out. When you when you open the shutter, light comes through the lens, is focused by the lens through the aperture, which is the opening that uh, exists between the lens and the film, and then hits the film, the shutter closes, and the chemical reaction that takes place on the film is what preserves that image. Right. So uh, that's how a film camera works in general. Now, a, a movie film camera is based upon the same premise uh, with the major difference being that film is fed through the, uh, the camera at a, a certain rate and the shutter opens and closes at a, a particular frequency so that you take several images all within a second. And when you play those images back at the proper speed, you get the illusion of movement. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the whole basis of film right there. Now, the way it works in the, in the olden, olden days with right. film cameras, you had hand-cranked cameras. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Um, th- these are the cameras, if you've ever seen footage of of uh, old movie sets or even a, a film where that's, it's set in that era, you see like the, the guy 
peering into the camera and he's turning a crank on the side of it as he's shooting a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is physically moving the film past the shutter, which is opening and closing at a specific rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you were a very good film operator, camera operator rather, um, you could move that at a pretty consistent rate through the camera. Mm-hmm. And when it was played back, it would be mm, smooth-ish. Smoothish. Well, because nice. we're human, right? Well, of course. We're never going to move it at the specific speed we need. And uh, again, projector speeds are also variable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, the the theater operators might, uh, in fact, in the olden days, this happened a lot. Uh, back in the silent film era, theater operators might set their projectors to sh- to play back a little faster than normal mm-hmm. because it meant that you could fit more showings in a single day. I see. <laughs> Your film would be over faster. So anyway, you would hand crank the film. The film goes past the point where the shutter opens and closes and the images are captured. Um, as uh, And if you, if you were to crank the film faster... So that you're you're putting more film through, and you're getting more shots of the action. Uh, this actually translated into slow motion. Mm-hmm. So uh, they back in the silent film era, the standard frames per second that you would have for uh, for film, and that's another good thing to point out. Film is is we talk about film in frames, mm-hmm. and a fr- you can think of a frame as a single still photograph. Yes. Okay. So back in those days, uh, the standard, and it, I use the term loosely, was 16 frames per second. Mm-hmm. And that was sufficient to give you the sense of movement when it was played back at 16 frames per second. Mm-hmm. If you were to speed that up, where you take maybe 32 frames per second, but you're playing it back at 16 frames per second, the action would look very slow to you. Yes. It actually look like half speed. Because mm-hmm. you're, be you're using twice as much film in that time. Speed. Yeah, yeah. So you're using twice as much film to capture the same action, uh, and when you play it back at the the normal speed, it feels like it's slow motion. Same thing if you were to if you were to undercrank, if you were to use less film to capture the action, it would look sped up and jerky. So when you see those old uh, silent films where everyone's suddenly running at a speed that is not <laughs> humanly possible and everyone's kind of jerking around, that's uh, when they were undercranking the camera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And eventually they added motors into cameras, which allowed you to create a, an actual standard speed. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't until they found a way of putting sound into um into film as well in a, in a standardized way uh, that they settled on 24 frames per second, which is the current standard of, of uh, how many frames per second for film. Yeah. Now, uh, I, you were going to say something, I could tell, and I just interrupted you before you could even start. Well, no, I was going to point out that uh, TV cameras shoot at 30 frames per second. Yes. Which is why TV looks different. It's got that different feel than uh, than watching a movie. Yeah, and, and it's using video as opposed to film right. film. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there are a couple of differences with that. Uh, video is taken in... When we talk about a frame of video, it's not the same thing as a frame of film. No. Because with film, like I said, you take uh, the film from a camera... Uh, actually, when you take the film from a camera, it's it's in its negative format. You have to develop the film before you can look at it as if it were a, a regular image. Right. Um, Basically, that's bathing it in, in some chemicals that will help uh, bring the images out 
um, and then of course uh, you know stopping the reaction and fixing it in place right before it can be you know preserved for the long haul right right and that's another time where you can't have this film exposed to light no because then it would ruin the uh, the process yes it would uh, but it would it would continue it would be as if you were continuing to film on that film yeah essentially um, and we'll probably get into that a little bit more in our second part of this where we're talking about post-production but uh, it, the other element of video is that a frame of video is not is not like a single image as it is in uh, in film right mm-hmm. um, television uh, at least uh, if we're not talking about progressive scan TV we're talking about classic television mm-hmm. is uh, is played where each frame is made up of two fields. Okay. Right. Think of your TV as a series of, of lines of dots. Okay. Like, like uh, horizontal horizontal lines. lines. And field number one would be all the odd number lines. So lines right. one, three, five, seven, etc., all the way down. Those would be field one, right. and that would be half of a frame. And that would that your your television would paint these these dots, mm-hmm. uh, and they, it does it at a very very fast rate. It sounds like it's you know, like you'd be able to see it, but it's, it's so fast that you can't you can't perceive it. Right. Uh, but it would paint all the odd lines first, and then it would paint the even lines. That would be the second field, field one and field two, and mm-hmm. together those two fields would con- would make a frame of video. Um, and your television would be playing that back at is it thirty or sixty? I think. Well, I know that when you're when you're capturing it, it's thirty frames per second, but. Um, so it's a little it is a little different it feels different from film and mm-hmm. and that translates uh, over into digital cinema we'll get into that too mm-hmm. so getting back to the the film uh set so you you're limited uh originally with the old cameras you were pretty limited to static shots you couldn't really move the camera very much uh so if you look at old old movies you'll see a lot of of Shots that are single take, and it lasts a good long while, and then it'll move to a totally different setting and a new scene, and the point of view won't change very much. Uh, right, just because of the uh, you know the setups that they had, they didn't have the sophisticated uh, equipment that goes along with you know the, the setting of the shots that we use today. The the, uh, the dollies and all the, the cranes and all those things. Right, exactly. Yeah, those in in back then you would have. A tripod setup, mm-hmm. a camera on the tripod, and that was pretty much it. You might be able to do a pan where you you turn the camera uh, in a certain direction uh, so that you can follow the action, mm-hmm. but beyond that, it wasn't there wasn't much movement. It wasn't until we started thinking, seeing things like dollies, and a dolly is essentially a platform that's on wheels, mm-hmm. uh, and the tripod is on the platform. So the camera itself is still stable; it's just on a surface that can move around. Mm-hmm. Uh, many dollies, in fact, I would I would probably say most uh, tend to be set on tracks mm-hmm. so that in turn also limits the motion that the camera will experience while you're capturing film uh, this is in general a pretty good thing because uh, most filmmakers want to avoid the really jerky motions you would get if you were just holding a camera and trying to capture images mm-hmm. if you've ever uh, you know watch any home home video ever mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah uh, the home video effect is something that most filmmakers want to avoid unless they're doing something like a documentary or they want to evoke a particular mood like let's say 
it's a uh, a war scene mm-hmm. and you want that chaotic uh, feel where you know you, you, it's every it, it's very disorienting and frightening and you're not really sure what's happening uh, you may want to have a handheld camera effect so that it gives the audience kind of a, a feeling of disorientation and it it helps evoke the mood you were going after yeah just just to point out for all of you uh, amateur home video uh aficionados. Yes, it can be better than that, but most people don't take the time to invest in the equipment and practice shooting as a professional uh, filmmaker might. Yeah, and and there are a lot of that you can't do it. Oh, sure, there are a lot of people don't. And there are a lot of of home filmmakers who have made their own dollies, they've mm-hmm. made their own cranes, they made their own steady cams. We'll talk about steady cam in a second. Um, yeah, actually, I, I ran into that in my research, and it's it's pretty cool. It's not that hard to do to build, you know, just a basic setup for yeah. your own uh, home video equipment. Yeah, it's very it's it's very much kind of a Jerry rig kind of uh, approach to it. But uh, really, the whole film industry is based off of that sort of ingenuity. Mm-hmm. You know, we we look at the stuff that is used in films today, and you think, wow. It's really advanced technology, but all of it is pretty much based on some guy saying, you know what would be really cool? If we could get this such and such shot, but how do we do that? And then just coming up with a way of, of making it work. And well, really, it's just refining that. <laughs> mother necessity. Yes, yes. Hey, mama. So, uh, <laughs> all right, so... We've talked about how, how film is capturing the light and, you know, you get it, the photochemical reaction on the film. You later develop the film and you can, you can watch it once you play it back at a, in a projector. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about the difference with digital. Okay, sure. Yeah. So uh, to kind of, kind of transition from film to digital, let's talk a little bit about uh, video. Uh, and we mentioned it already about how it, it's played back. It's captured and played back at a different speed than film. So it does give you a different feel. Um, and this is this is actually perceptible. People will say, like, you know, television does not look like movies. Yeah, that's and, true. And even watching a movie on TV doesn't feel like it does when you're watching it in a, in a theater. Right. And not just because you're not watching it on a huge screen and you got a, a you know, $50,000 surround sound system around you or anything like that. It's that the actual quality of the picture and the, the quality of the movement that you see in the picture is different. Mm-hmm. It's because there's a weird conversion process. I'm not going to get into it. We've but, mentioned it before, though, yeah, on the, the podcast. Pull, the pull-down process. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. There's a weird process that you have to go in order to make the frames of film fit the frames of video format. And it's a very strange mathematical process. Uh, and it doesn't it doesn't give you the most natural uh, playback, which is why it doesn't really look the way it should in the or the way it would if you were seeing it in the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, now, video cameras have uh, a, an interesting setup uh, as opposed to the the uh, the film cameras. So instead of capturing the the image and putting it onto film, it's using something called a charge coupled device. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's a, a semiconductor image sensor, and so it's it's measuring light, and it is uh, then. Pre- Taking those measurements, putting it toward uh, photosites, mm-hmm. which convert this uh, with an analog to digital converter, convert this this th- these measurements of light into ones and zeros. Okay, that's where we're getting into the digital. Now, these ones and zeros, that's 
just digital information that can either be uh, used to capture to to put onto magnetic tape. Mm-hmm. You actually wouldn't even use the analog to digital in that case. You could just mm-hmm. put the uh, the measurements of the light directly onto the magnetic tape. Use the magnetic tape to play back in something like a VCR, and that would take those measurements and convert them back into uh, light and and sound. Or you could do the analog to digital conversion, um, and then you have a, a digital image, right? Which you can play back in lots of devices, as it turns out, uh, things like DVD players, computers, that kind of stuff. Uh, the interesting thing about digital versus film, uh, there is a difference in the appearance. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, you're not capturing necessarily at 24 frames per second, although there are digital cameras out there that can do that, that can uh, capture images at the same rate as film. Uh, in fact, the Attack of the Clones was filmed with a camera that could do that. Yeah, that was the, uh, as a matter of fact, the very first uh, major movie, as I'm not, uh, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, used digital filmmaking yeah. and that's actually that's the one of re- the reasons that uh, you might go to this process you know you might say well hey why would somebody use if there's a, a quality to film that makes it different from uh, shooting it directly to a digital uh, version of, of the uh, movie why would you do that well one of the biggest reasons um, other than its flexibility is the cost yeah because uh, there is a huge cost savings. Um, yeah, you don't have to buy film. Yeah, for one thing, that's that's exactly right. Uh, and film, unlike unlike digital, uh, you know, digital. If if something's actually, there's a lot of reasons why you would do this, but uh, f- film. That is one of the bigger ones. Right, right. Film you can only you can only use once. Mm-hmm. That's right. So you buy you have to buy way more film than you're actually going to end up using in your movie because of course you know you're not every take is going to be perfect and you want to make the best film possible mm-hmm. which means you have to do lots and lots and lots of takes to give yourself as many choices as possible in the post-production process which we'll get into in another podcast um you want to give as many choices as possible once you reach that point so that you don't have to go back and do anything again or do a new scene or anything like that right so yeah, that's a huge cost. Buying, you know, ten times more film easy than you're ever going to need. Actually, ten times is not even close to how much film some of these these uh, movies required in order to bring a two-hour film to theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, and also distribution. If you're distributing a film, that means you have to actually produce. You have to buy more film to to yeah. produce your movie. Yeah, right? you have to actually uh, make another print of it. Yes, and yes. then ship that to a physical copy theater. Yeah, and, and if you have you know multiple screens, say for one of the blockbuster films, right? Then you have say you know have your local twenty four screen megaplex, and six of those screens are showing the same blockbuster movie. Then you've got six copies for that one theater alone. Right. That's expensive. Yeah, and the other another really big problem with using film versus digital. I'm not I mean again, film you get that certain quality with it, but yes. digital you can see immediately how well that take came out. Well yeah, anybody who has a digital camera, still camera, who has used film in the past is fully aware of the differences of being able to, you know, go back and look at the screen and see what you just shot. Right. Versus, well, I'll see this after I get it back from the developer. Yeah, in two or three weeks, and then I'll see whether or not that that picture actually came out. Um, yeah, uh, the immediate feedback to digital is a huge 
boon to filmmakers. They can see, like, you know, you, you shoot a scene, you take a look at the scene immediately after you shoot it, and then you decide whether or not you need another take. Uh, with film, you you all you can go on is what you saw as the as the take was going, but mm-hmm. you can't really, you know, maybe the camera wasn't. Uh, aligned properly. Maybe uh, the light wasn't quite right for the film to capture it, um, but you wouldn't know until you get a chance to look at it later on uh, in dailies. And that, you know, by then you're like, you may find out that you have to go back and reshoot a scene that can push your whole production back. So yeah, digital definitely helps during the movie making process to keep things on schedule. Assuming you're not someone like Stanley Kubrick who would do a hundred takes of a single scene whether or not it was perfect the first time that would be immaterial <laughs> um, well you never know there might be something in the other in the other versions in one of the other takes it's oh you know never even intended that but look at that yeah another difference between digital and film which we should mention really quickly mm-hmm. um, assuming that you're watching a digital movie on some sort of digital uh, playback device, as opposed to, because some digital movies are converted into film, mm-hmm. right? You shoot it digitally and then sure. you transfer it to film. In fact, a lot of movies have to be done this way because not every theater has a digital projector. Yep. So you have to convert it into film. But assuming that you're watching it from a digital source and, uh, you know, like a digital projector, it's going to look the same way the hundredth time it's shown as it did the first time it was shown. Right. So if you want those little burn marks, you have to put them in there when you're... Right. Yeah. The little hair that's going across the screen. Yeah. With film, film degrades over Mm -hmm. time and over use. So the hundredth time a film is shown, a physical film is shown, is going to look different than the first time because the film's going to have some wear and tear on it. Sure. So that's another thing that the filmmakers take into consideration. So... The digital process is different. Uh, when it goes to these photo sites, the, the light, when it's hitting the, the, the photo sites, that then gets converted into uh, ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. Some of the digital cameras have something called a beam splitter. Ah. Splits the light into component colors. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the component colors of video are red, green, and blue. Yes. And we've actually had some listeners write in uh, with a, re- a related question asking, why is that considered the primary colors in film? Why red, green, and blue? Because in art class, I learned that the primary colors were red, blue, and yellow. That's right. Because red and yellow make orange, and yellow blue make green, and blue and red make purple, and a whole bunch makes a big mess. Um <laughs> And the answer to that is the difference between additive and subtractive colors. Mm-hmm. Now yeah, we've we've talked about this in the past too. Yeah. We got into the uh, the cables. Right, right. So let's let, I'll talk about subtractive colors first because that's that's kind of the you know you go to elementary school and you learn your primary colors red, blue, and yellow. You get a little color wheel and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, subtractive. You now it sounds it, it first it seems kind of um, counterintuitive. Because you think of it as subtractive, but you're adding pigments together to make new colors. Right. But in subtractive, you start with white. All right? That's 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 one end of the spectrum. Right. And the more colors you add, the closer to black you get. That's right. So if you were to add all the different colors together, you would eventually get black. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I do know that if you want to be really technical, you're, you really should say magenta, cyan, and yellow, not red, blue, and yellow. Um, well, yeah, for uh, for print, for print, and for for photos and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when we're talking about film and we go into red, green, and blue, that's because we're talking about light. Mm-hmm. 
When you're using light, you start with black. Black is the absence of light. So you have no light. Um, if you use different colors of light, say red and uh, and green, then you start – if you add those together, that's when you start getting um, different colors. You, you So instead of it being red, yellow, and blue, it's red, green, and blue. And those are the colors that when you start adding the, the different colors of light together, you start getting the other colors of the spectrum. If you add all of them together, you get white. So you start with black and you end with white as opposed to the subtractive method where you start with white and you end with black. Mm-hmm. So it's all ha- all has to do with the nature of light and color. Yep. And, uh, you know, anybody really who's uh, messed with their computer settings and started fooling around with the little color settings on your computer when you're, you know, doing some kind of project um, and you have the, the different... Uh, sliders, you probably have an idea of what we're talking about. Right. But now I have to confess, I am singing Ludwig von Drake's Spectrum song in my head. Red, yellow, green, red, blue, 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 red. I uh, can't do that or Disney will sue me. Um, you kept it under five seconds. Yes. All right. Yeah. Like like there's any hard and fast rule to that. Um, so anyway, uh, with a digital camera, a lot of these have beam splitters in them that split mm-hmm. the light into their various component parts, colors. the red, the green, and the blue. And then has, they have dedicated photo sites that record that information converted into digital information. All of that together combined makes the picture. The reason for splitting the, the beam into the component colors is to try and stay as true to the original uh, image as possible mm-hmm. so that what what you see in front of you with your own eyes when you're capturing it with your camera is what you would theoretically see when you're playing it back because mm-hmm. we all know you know cameras can alter the way things look to you like you can see something that you saw with your own eyes and then you see a picture of it and you think wow that looks that looks different than the way I remember it mm-hmm. and there are a couple different reasons for that some of that is because we're human and sometimes our memories are not so so accurate but others is that the cameras can kind of alter the way something looks mm-hmm. um, I had another point there with that too but now I'm I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna falter around until I, c- I come back up with it do you need a minute yeah uh, vamp. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> so you know this. It's funny, uh, not that this is on topic, but you know we had meant to cover a whole bunch of other stuff in this podcast, and we are getting very close to time. Yeah, why so don't I think we, this may be how movie cameras work. Well, no, no, no. I'm gonna. I'm determined to You're get determined? a little further in it. First okay. of all, Steadicam, because I said that we were going to talk about it. Okay, because we didn't even touch on the uh, the higher definition video cameras or any of that stuff. Yeah. Well, we'll have to do one where we'll talk okay. specifically about higher definition video cameras. Yeah. Because cool. the the red one is the one you wanted to talk about oh, yeah. specifically. Yeah, but that's that's fine because you know there's plenty more where this came from. Yeah, yeah. What the nice thing is this is a we'll we'll have fodder for future episodes and don't worry, folks. We will space them out so that you won't get exhausted. It's not how movies work after all. Um, so Steadicam is that was an approach to remember when I said that you know cameras were kind of in a fixed position until they came up with things like dollies and cranes and mm-hmm. eventually things like helicopter shots and stuff. Um, they still it was still kind of hard. You didn't have as much freedom to follow actors as a director might like. Mm-hmm. And so that brings us to around 1976. And, 1976. Uh, yeah, that's that was that was when Steadicam became an actual like thing thing. Oh, okay. The the development of the Steadicam uh, preceded that, and uh, Garrett Brown is the guy right. who invented it. That was back in the early seventies. He started working on this in 1976. There was the Steadicam brand became official, mm-hmm. and yeah. that is a system that consists essentially of a vest, an articulated arm, 
and a uh, a rig that holds the camera. And the rig is essentially a pole with some elements on it. At the top, usually at the top, you have the camera. And at the base, you might have a monitor so that the camera operator can see what the camera is capturing because it's not going to be at eye level necessarily. Mm-hmm. And a battery to power the monitor. And uh, it it what it does is it increases the um, the amount of inertia that the camera experiences. Because, you know, a camera's not that heavy, and the tiniest motions can create these jerky reactions, and that's what, you know, most filmmakers want to avoid, because it kind of takes the audience out of the action. I, I, point of order. Yeah. I'd just like to point out, it depends on the camera. <laughs> Some of those cameras are pretty heavy. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying relatively. Okay. All relatively right. light. All right. Compared to, say, a Humvee. Now, uh, which obviously <laughs> has African elephant. greater amount of inertia involved True. with a Humvee than it would with a camera. True. Um, or, say, compared to a cameraman. Um, most cameras are going to be lighter than that. So the Steadicam thing... It, it creates a, a, a bigger axis. It, create, it changes the center of gravity for a camera, mm-hmm. and it reduces the jumps and jitters that you would get uh, as you move around with a camera. It's more or less like a system of shock absorbers. Yeah. Because yeah, the, it's, it's giving with the, uh, the weight of the camera, and so it, it keeps it steady when all the, uh, the world is bouncing around it. Right. As the camera's weight makes it move mm-hmm. downward, the, the articulated arm actually has some springs in it, like shock absorbers, that act uh, in an opposite upward direction, which means that the, the camera itself kind of remains semi-level. I mean, there's still going to be some movement, but it's it's much more uh, smooth than it would be if it were held against the shoulder of a camera operator. Yes. So it's a, it's a really interesting and useful invention. Um, my favorite Steadicam shot ever is in Goodfellas. Oh, yeah? Yeah, it's a five-minute single take of following a character through a restaurant, and it is absolutely brilliant. Scorsese was a master, as far as I'm concerned, with that shot. That was amazing. Um, <laughs> but there are a lot of other uh, examples of, of Steadicam shots as well. So I had to get that in there, Yeah, because <laughs> I mentioned it before. Um, also, there's microphones. Yes. We were going to mention that. We were, but I think we're going to have to we'll table have to, that. We'll have now. to do an episode specifically about microphones and sound on film. That'll be in the future, folks. Okay. We're going to wrap this up because, yeah, we're hitting the 30-minute mark now. So this was a, a good discussion about film and digital video cameras uh, for uh, in the filmmaking business. Uh, in our next episode, we will be talking about the post-production st- side of making movies. Mm-hmm. And uh, we might get into a little bit of the sound stuff there. Um not too much, probably, because judging how long I talked about movie cameras, uh, it may end up being its own episode yeah. well, further down the line. Uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest, we're, we're really scratching the surface of it. There's so much technology involved in the, the production of movies that we could uh, we could probably do a pretty long series of these yeah, we could probably, if we really got into it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll talk about things like practical effects and digital effects in, in future episodes, but mm-hmm. yeah, we'll give it a nice rest for a while so you guys can listen to some other uh, podcasts topics in the meantime if you guys have any suggestions for us or uh, you know you have a question or comment something like that you can write us our email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com and chris and i will talk to you again really soon if you're a tech stuff fan be sure to check us out on twitter Tech Stuff HSW is our handle, and you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash techstuffhsw. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the new Tech Stuff blog, now on the HowStuffWorks homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?